Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening to this podcast. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend their respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. And this is another one of our podcast series where we get a chance to look at some of the really interesting paths that dietitians are following and, might I say, owning. And one of those areas um, for dietitians in Australia where they've forged a reputation as really international research leaders is in the intensive care setting. And we've got a group of dietitians across Australia who are widely recognised for their research in the field of critical care nutrition. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by two of these amazing women, Emma Ridley and Kate Lambell, both based in Melbourne in Victoria. Emma is a Senior Research Fellow and NHMRC Emerging Leadership Fellow and leads the nutrition program at the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre at Monash University. She completed her PhD in 2018, looking at nutrition in critically ill adults and continues to practice clinically in the ICU at Alfred Hospital here in Melbourne. She's published widely and has been incredibly successful in winning research grants through her career, attracting over $10 million in research funding. In addition to being a dietitian, Emma's a wife, a sister and a mother to two children aged seven and two. Kate Lambell has 17 years experience working as a clinical dietitian and currently leads the ICU burns and trauma nutrition team at the Alfred Hospital. In 2021, she completed her PhD studying novel bedside techniques for muscle mass assessment in critically ill adults. She's co-lead of the Australasian Society for Parental and Enteral Nutrition Research Mentoring Program, and she's also a mother to two young children aged five and eight. So welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast to both of you. I'm really looking forward to hearing your stories. Thank you. Thanks for the nice introduction. So let's start with you, Emma. Um, can you give me, and it's, well, you call it long, in my terms, it's probably not a long career, <laughs> um, a, a quick overview of your career path up until now and, and where you are at the moment. Yeah, it feels long to me when I look around <laughs> our nutrition department and realise I'm one of the longer serving staff <laughs> members and everyone's a lot younger than me. Feels, it's all feels relative. Long. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember when I was in that position, I used to look at the people that had been there for years and years and think, God, they've been here for so long. And like, I wonder why they've stayed. And then here I am. So there you go. Um, so I graduated in 2005 and got a um, graduate position at the Alfred, which was really um I was really fortunate and I still remember that phone call from our manager because it just was something that I really, really wanted in my career. Um, worked for a couple of years and then started to get interested in research quite early on, actually, and decided to enrol in a Master's of Public Health and um, include research subjects within that Master's. Um, at that time, then it led me to critical care as a clinician, which is really where I wanted to focus my clinical skills. Um, and then 
that got me into research in that space as well. So I then um, actually left clinical dietetics full-time quite early um, and uh, made the jump to academia as a project manager. Um, So that really happened quite early. I probably had only been working for about three years at that time. Um, And it was a risk, but it was something that I thought, if I really want to have a go at this, I probably need to try. So I started as a project manager and was doing other people's projects in intensive care nutrition. And I thought that's where I would stay. But after a couple of years, I got um, a little bit frustrated with that and thought that I really have to do a PhD if I want to make gains in this space myself. And I was getting frustrated because I thought I had some good ideas myself, but I realized that I was never going to actually get funding or be able to get traction unless I myself had a PhD. So it wasn't necessarily part of my long-term plan, but it was something, especially at the time, I felt like I kind of had no choice but to make that jump and do it. I'm obviously very pleased that I did it now and it was definitely the right choice, but it wasn't something that I had a burning desire to do forever. Um, And then that's led me on this path where now I am more of an academic. I lead um, the nutrition program in critical care, really enjoying what I do at the moment. And um, I feel like I'm making a big difference to our patients and to our profession. Um, But I still keep a little part of me um, doing clinical practice because that's where my heart really is all the time. Um, And I think it's just nice to have the balance of um, some clinical work with research as well. Yeah, that's really interesting, Emma. And talking about the MPH or the Masters of Public Health, it's Back in, those, I don't want to say those days, but back <laughs> some years ago, that really was pretty much the standard post-dietetic graduate, um, you know, course that a lot of dietitians did. There wasn't a lot of options out there for no. further qualifications. So, and I didn't even know it had research units in it that you could do. But yeah, um, it was a bit of game playing because you could enrol under public the Masters of Public Health, and it was cheaper at that time. It was subsidised by the government. Then you could take the research subject. So essentially what you ended up doing was a master's of clinical research, but it was via the public health stream. Um, And I decided to actually do coursework for my whole master's because I wanted to learn the theory and get a really good grounding in research. And I'm so pleased that I did because I now have a really good firm basis of research methodology that Mm. I use now in my research career. Um, And I felt that I was getting the practice of research in the job that I had at the time, which um, was true. I was actually doing the research. So actually learning the principles behind it was what was important to me. Yeah, which you don't necessarily get in a PhD, do you? I mean, you you embark on a research program, but you haven't necessarily defined what that research methodology is going to be all the time. Yeah, you certainly learn um, about the studies that you're doing specifically, but nothing, not really the, the broader context for sure. Yeah. And also I think the interesting thing about PhD, it's not necessarily, oh, I really want to do a PhD. You don't actually hear that come out of anyone's mouths very much, but it is sort of a means to an end and getting through it I think gives you that grounding and and probably a bit of credibility just on a broader scale. People with research will go, oh, you've got a PhD. So, okay, you've got some credentials there. So that's an interesting perspective. So, Kate, how did you, how have you got to your position at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Jane. Um, I think there are some parallels for sure between Emma and I. I also graduated in 2005 and um, was lucky enough to get a new graduate job at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Um, I kind of always thought I would do clinical work and also thought, oh, maybe maybe some private practice. But once I got into clinical work, I really thought, you know, this is where I want to be. And I really liked the 
um, the more medical side um, and medical nutrition therapy. And so um, that was a big interest to me. However, I did move different states for, for personal reasons and uh, dabbled in um, some uh, working for a company as a rep for pa- paediatric products. So that was good experience. But um, after a few years, it taught me that I really where I want to be is in the hospital environment and working with patients and, and more in the team environment. So worked across multiple different areas uh, clinically uh, and came to Melbourne and was working at a, a private hospital in uh, ICU and upper GI surgery and went to one of the Alfred courses on critical care nutrition and thought, wow, this is sort of um, amazing in terms of the research that was being done and really that technical side of uh, medical nutrition therapy I really enjoy, I really liked and thought I want to work there. So I started at the Alfred and working with Emma and others and it was at the Alfred really, I suppose, just being able to see dietitians doing research as well as working clinically and particularly with critical care patients. Um, you know, we were feeding these patients a lot, um, but they were sort of wasting away in front of us. And I'll never forget a patient in my mind, a young trauma patient where we were measuring energy expenditure, but he was just wasting away in front of me. And I thought, you know, what about muscle mass? Like, what are we doing? We're feeding, we're doing our best, but it's just, we're just not making any gains. And, and that's really, it was that kind of clinical questioning as well that I really wanted to understand you know, how can we measure muscle mass at the bedside? And at that time, there was very little techniques or tools to do that. And so that really started my journey with research with a clinical question that I wanted to answer. And I probably wasn't brave enough, as Emma would say, to sort of jump straight into research. I'd never done anything before, but there was at that time an opportunity to get a funded spot in a master's of research. And that was a a master's of research with coursework. So I enrolled in that um, and did that part-time for 12 months. Um, And then I went and had a baby and then decided when I came back, I thought, no, I really want to learn more deeply um, and be more embedded with the research. I was really liking the understanding more in that side of it. Um, and that sort of led me, I, I, I then moved towards doing a PhD uh, and, and did that um, and, yeah, finished that in 2021. So did you do your PhD? You are still working at the Alfred at the time. Were you doing a part-time or full-time PhD? <laughs> Over the seven years, Jane, it took me seven years. <laughs> there was dabbling. I think it was a mix of lots of different things. So I... Um, when the kids, well, my first child was quite small, I was just doing a part PhD part-time and working um, on weekends clinically. Every second Saturday, I would work clinically, just keeping those skills up. And then over time, I sort of, I worked for the university for a little while and doing, because that was easier to do. And then I um, uh, worked for Emma, doing some research assistant work, um, as well as doing a PhD. But what I did find was that I just wanted to get it done because it was taking a long time and I wanted to have that time. And, and luckily, I should say I was funded through a scholarship. So I did that full time for periods of time. And then at the end, when the scholarship ran out, came back to work um, and during COVID as well, came back to work uh, within our ICU. So um, <laughs> so Emma did you do yours full-time yeah I did do it full-time so the thought of 
prolonging the pain was just too unbearable. So I just thought, and, you know, look, I was lucky I did get an NHMRC scholarship, so that does help. But it's still not a huge amount, even though it's a good scholarship to have. Um, But I was able to uh, work on the weekend, so I still worked clinically in the ICU every second weekend, I think it was, so it was quite a lot. Um, I got paid one day a week within the funding rules um, via Monash because I was still doing some of my project management stuff. And then I had my fellowship. So um, I did take a significant pay cut, but we were able to make it work. And I wanted to make it work because I just couldn't fathom having, you know, taking six years to do it. So it took me about three and a bit years. I also had a baby um, during the process. Um, which I don't think is a necessarily a bad way to go, to be honest. It's actually so flexible. I, you know, I wouldn't, um, you know, whenever anyone asks me about planning a family and trying to fit in a PhD, I always say I think it actually, they're, they're both go together quite nicely, um, yeah. to be honest. And over the time of working, and obviously the Alfred, you're probably in a, a sort of a privilege, that might not be the right word, position where, you know, nutrition is obviously completely integral to that that ICU setting and service. Um, but, Kate, you mentioned that you had spent some time at a private hospital in an intensive care unit. You were allowed in there? Yes, I did work in a private hospital and that was also, it was a, it was a good experience in that it taught me what where I didn't want to work um, in that uh, you weren't very respected uh, mm. within that environment Um, but it was also very good to practice I suppose um, difficult conversations and challenging conversations and but it got to the point even though when having conversations about escalation of nutrition therapy uh, which didn't go very far um, I realized this is not really the place if I'm not being respected um, where I want to work and so hence moved on quite quickly after about 18 months of working there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I have clear memories of my clinical career, and that's obviously going back even more, a lot further than you guys. But some intensive care is like really, even in larger public hospitals, dietitians barely got to put their toes across the threshold. Um, do you, over the time that you've worked in the area, the research in the area, do you think generally dietetics is a nutrition? dietitians particular, I guess, rather than doctors leading nutrition, is improving in the intensive care setting? Um, yeah, my general sense is we do a lot of multi-centre work. So I get to see, and that's part of what I love about doing research, is I get to see a lot about how other people work and what happens. Um, I I think, yes, I think things have slowly shifted. I do think that um, nutrition is now accepted as a really important part of therapy exactly what it does we're not sure and I think we still can fall short on that sometimes and there I, I think it's rightly so that people would challenge you know what is the value because the evidence doesn't show us that and I, I think that that is fair I think that's an academic discussion we have to have um, what I would add is that I think doing research doing higher study leading in the area in turn even if it's just small pieces of work in your ICU is what actually builds the respect um, and actually grows your service and shows that you're not just here to check feed volumes you're here to improve the science of nutrition to understand how it might improve care for our patients um, and that you are the expert in the field of nutrition and metabolism and understanding that for the patients and connecting the dots for them so translating 
this is a medical situation, this is a nutrition situation, and this is how these two relate, and that's our expertise. So I think, um, yes, it's true that sometimes we cannot be respected or valued, but I think we can build that by showing that we are much more than just someone who's checking feed volumes. Yeah, and I guess it's often been the same in the general wards, hasn't it? I mean, working like my most of my area of work was malnutrition and it's the same. We're not just bringing the milk or the fortified supplements or whatever exactly. to the morning tea. Like yeah, there's exactly. more going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So uh, I'm interested um, as well as the work that you're doing in the research about having career breaks because I find that this is something that younger dietitians are often nervous about taking a career break, um, how they're going to do it, how it's going to impact on their work. I guess I generally have spoken to young females rather than males, but I'm sure that it affects across the board. Um, you've both had career breaks, as you mentioned, um, within your PhDs, but career breaks with um, maternity leave. Can you tell me like how you manage that and you sort of touched on it, Emma, with your, with your PhD, but how you manage taking the break and also how you manage returning to work? Uh, yeah, I'll start, Kate, if you don't mind, and then you can fill in. Um, so the first time I was doing my PhD, so it was a bit different. So um, I think in terms of taking a career break in that setting, you just have to be sure that you're um, where you can, because obviously sometimes you can't plan these things, but where you can um, hope that your projects are in a, in a place that you can step away. Um, the thing with a PhD is often no one's going to pick it up and do it for you. So you're going to have to be able to leave it in a nice place for you to come back in and pick it up when you're ready. Um, so that's probably the main piece of advice. And I would also just say that I too was, I was actually had a huge amount of anxiety taking um career break for my first maternity leave um, purely because I am quite career driven I really enjoy my career I it's something that I get great fulfillment out of and I'd spent so much time up until that point trying to build my career that the thought of stepping out for a whole year was actually quite terrifying and I thought maybe I'm going to lose the traction that I've got um, and, and exactly as you say how am I going to step back in um, mm. in actual fact both of the times that I've had um, maternity leave my career has escalated um, I don't know why I'm not sure why I don't know if it's whether me stepping out has given me more time to think which gives me more ideas which then um, helps me move forward with my research or whether it's just something that was going to happen anyway but um, I certainly the second time I took maternity leave I approached it differently because I thought look it was fine last time it'll probably be fine this time and it, and it was um, completely. So I understand the feeling of feeling anxious for sure. But I think, um, you know, sometimes you just have to put yourself first and trust that the universe has a plan and it will be as it is. Um, we were talking a little bit offline at the start. And if I'm honest, I took maternity leave from the Alfred because um, that's, you know, a job that I go to and the patients are in the hospital. I took maternity leave from my PhD and also from my research role the second time. But honestly, I really only had about three or four months off if I'm honest um, and that was purely because research is really hard to step away from completely um, and if you really want to progress with it you you can't just leave it unfortunately. How does that actually work with a scholarship if you take a break for maternity leave do you, they put a pause on your funding so you get that yeah, extended? Yeah they pause it and you right. get extended at the end yeah so um, and it, it, it all it, it does help with track record type discussions around um, 
you know, your career duration when you're trying to get funding, they do recognise that. Um, there there are lots of conversations about how well they recognise that, but they do recognise that you've stepped out for a period of time as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I suppose that was interesting when you said, Emma, that it took, you know, out when you're on your maternity leave, you reflected on things with ideas. And actually during my first maternity leave break, so I was working full-time as a clinical dietitian doing a master's of research part-time. And it was while on maternity leave that I, I suppose, thought about where I want to go with my career and, and took that time to think think about that. And, and during that time, I decided to um, apply for a PhD and was lucky enough to get a scholarship. Um my second time um, I was working, I was recruiting for my study, which my main study for my PhD. And um, I'd like to say it's not, uh, it was an accident. It's not an accident. She was a surprise (laughs) (laughs) getting pregnant with my second child, but it was the worst timing because I had just started recruitment for my study. I was about halfway through and I, you know, in your mind, you you want to plan and I think a lot of dietitians are probably like you know everything has its place and this is how we see it happening and um obviously it doesn't always happen that way and um so that was quite challenging because I was gaining momentum with recruitment and I just wanted that done before we considered having another child and it didn't happen like that um and I had a, quite a few complications with my daughter's pregnancy. So that kind of added another element of stress to think about, oh, what's, you know, being out of control in the situation. But um, luckily I had really amazing, great supervisors and I've got wonderful friends and mentors and people who have done this before, like Emma, um, that, you know, you can lean on and talk to. Um, and, and you know, the world moves on and it's such a short time in the scheme of things when you're having a career, well, for, for maternity leave anyway, it's quite a small career break in the scheme of things. And so um, I was quite well supported in that um, one of the doctors continued consenting for my study, um, which was using ultrasound. Um, so that was, I was lucky enough to have that under my belt. So that the study kept recruiting while I was away. And then before you know it, you're back into it and 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 then you've got to deal with children, small children and sick child care sickness, which actually I think is the toughest thing. I certainly found the first six months of returning to work was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do because you're trying to get back into work up all night with sick children, you're sick, everyone's sick, mm. and but you're not wanting to let people down with whatever you're doing when you're back at work. And I think until you have children, sometimes you don't understand that. Um, I remember being uh, more junior and having, you know, older people in the department and thinking, you know, they're never here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now I totally understand that. Um, but the other thing I would say with um, doing research and clinical work and having children, I think it's really important to have a very um, good support network around. And I'm very lucky to have a very supportive partner um, as well, which I think is critical um, to to success. Yeah. And I certainly remember when that stage that is really a bit horrific, the first six months or even 12 months when they got that constant illness and several times thinking I can't do this, I'm just going to have to give up work because there is no possible way that I can keep a job going and keep calling in sick or have taken care of as leave or whatever it was because, and I remember saying to the paediatrician one time, I think I might just have to give up work and he goes, you might have to, you know, it's just what it is. Thanks, 
thanks, mate. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> didn't. Um, the kids grew up. Who knew? Um, and uh, and we moved beyond that. But but I think what you've both got to say about that is is really my experience too is to tell young dietitians or anyone that a career break does not break your career. Like it is just a pause and you have a very long career and, as you say, a year if it's that long is nothing. And, yeah, for two of mine, I didn't have jobs to go back to because we kept moving interstate like you, Kate. Um, but miraculously it you get there um, and, and, it, and it can be done. Um, so in terms of your overall careers to both of you, do you, can you pinpoint a particular high in your career that you look at? And bearing in mind, your careers are still young, okay? So I know you've got a lot of years <laughs> ahead of you. So I'm not saying that this is going to be your final high, but is there something that you look at already and go, wow, that was amazing? Do you want to start this time, Kate? Oh, sure, I'll start. Um, thanks, Emma. That's so nice of you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose I've had um, a couple, which has been amazing. Um uh, I think, you know, the first thing for me was obviously the sense of achievement with finishing a PhD. So in the research field, like um, any kind of, I think, extra degree or study is amazing and adds so much. And I think for me, that was um, that just that day of graduating was really special and to have family and things around. The other um, high with research was um, there was an international body composition expert um, professor. I think she's a professor now, Carla Prado from yep. uh, Canada. Canada, yeah. And I remember sitting there virtually during COVID times listening to an Espen webinar and she um, talked about, was talking about studies and, and novel kind of studies and, and my slide popped up with <laughs> my, my first paper, my main paper for my PhD and I think that was just amazing to me to think, you know, this little idea I had as a clinician at the bedside is now being recognised internationally and that was um was really heartwarming, I think, to see that that work had impact in, um, with an international expert. And I suppose the only final thing with um, in the clinical space was, um, you know, Emma and I for many, many years have been um, trying to get extra funding for our, uh, in our ICU, our intensive care unit. And I think the many years of obviously clinical work and embedding ourselves in the unit and advocacy um, training and education of staff, um, but also research and, and embedding that in, in into our unit. Um, we had a really uh, amazing win. I think it was about six to twelve months ago, where we um, almost we, we doubled our clinical staff um, funding for uh, in our ICU and particularly wow. our senior staff, which it doesn't sound like much, but for us it um, and certainly it's it's. Um, yeah, it was just a huge win for us. And I think that that will now allow us um, time to to continue to review our models of care, as well as trying to, as we said before, looking at having time to do quality and research uh, within our clinical environment, which I think is the way that we can progress our um, clinicians, um, as well as our profession in terms of what we do 
uh, we don't want to be doing the same thing in 10 to 15 yeah. years time. We, we want to be thinking differently and making sure that we're providing the best care, but also the job satisfaction for our staff. So that was a huge win the day. I think I almost cried to our director before that. So maybe he took that on board and thought she's going crazy <laughs> and we need to fund them more. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was, congratulations. <laughs> it was um, many years of work uh, to get to that point. So that was a career high for me. Yeah, because, I mean, we know that... Um, Research funding is a highly competitive thing, but EFT, yes. getting EFT in a hospital setting is just as competitive. So um, that that is a win. Well done. Emma, any particular highlights? Um, yeah, it would have to be when I, I've got two big research grants in my life. So one was um, before I even finished my PhD and one was just recently in December, actually. So both of those, I think, are career highs. Um, not just for getting the money. I mean, that's great, but um, I think it just like so much work goes into the ideas behind that before you even get to the point of asking for money. And so just the recognition that what you've been doing for years and years and years prior to that has amounted to something that is going to probably make an impact in some way. doesn't Even if it doesn't turn out to be a positive study, as people talk about, you're still going to make an impact in some way. And so just uh, having that uh, confidence that you have ideas that people like um, and also for nutrition that we can get things funded on a large scale and that it is important. Um, I think those two things have just been really important. And the most recent one in December, I'm super excited about because it's actually looking at models of care for critically ill patients in the way that we provide nutrition. And so um, I really hope in four years' time when we've done a lot of this work that uh, we'll have more questions, I'm sure, but that we've started to move our profession forward as well. So it's not just about our patients, it's about the way dietitians are working. Um, and I just am so excited about that because I don't want to look back and think I've been doing the same thing for 40 years. I want to look forward and think, we've changed, completely changed the way we're doing it and it's better and our patients are better cared for and we're more satisfied as clinicians and I think that's the best way forward. So, Yeah, and I think you're right, that recognition that it's it's an external recognition of what you're doing and that your idea is valid rather than just the people that you're talking to all the time that hear about it. So, Dietitians yeah. that you talk to all the time. Yeah, say, exactly. yeah, yeah, it's a great yeah, idea. We're on the same yeah. page, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So on the on the, the flip side of the, the highs, um, the most challenging aspects outside of the first six months when your kids are little, but um, work-wise, um, Emma, do you want to go? Or? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, so I've had a, a mentor leave quite unexpectedly, which was like just having um, – the world ripped out from underneath you and I describe it um, like a death if I'm honest because he was quite unwell and we couldn't um, talk to him for a long time and so it's just like someone just not being there the next day and so that was super hard because I wasn't at the point where I felt like I could do this by myself. Um, in actual fact it was probably good in some ways because it forced me to work out that I can do it and I was fine but I just had to have that lesson in a way that I really didn't want to have it. But yeah. I guess that's part of growth, isn't it? Um, so th there was that. And then I've had one, um, just a, a bad academic experience where someone um, really critiqued something that I'd uh, written, so a published article quite severely and unnecessarily in a public space, so on Twitter, um, and also sort of publishing things that went against what I'd said without informing me. And so that sort of... Um, 
that dark side of academia I really dislike and luckily it doesn't happen very often and I certainly try and um, conduct myself in the best way possible in that space. Um, but from time to time you are going to have people that maybe for no, no real good reason actually just take a dislike to something that you've said or to you or to your work or disagree or you push people's buttons because of things that you are studying when they don't agree with that and so that sometimes can bring out not a nice side and so I don't I don't enjoy that side obviously yeah. but um it is something that unfortunately we have to deal with occasionally that's interesting isn't it with the rise of twitter and the social media type stuff in the past as academics probably the thickest skin you had to have was reading the reviews of when you'd submitted a paper but they never went publicly that was just the the reviewers talking directly to you and that's hard enough to take yeah. oh they think my paper's rubbish or they yeah. you know don't think it's valid but then to have it amplified on yeah. a public forum like Twitter, I mean, I used to dread getting reviewers' responses back, but I can't even imagine seeing a response like that on Twitter. That That is horrifying. And that's not something you expect because it's not like you're putting yourself on Instagram, you know, no. social media like that. So No, and, I mean, it's meant to be science. It should be like yeah. I, I'm all about an academic Respect. discussion, like let's yeah. have a proper scientific discussion, absolutely, but not when it goes beyond and actually becomes personal that's not very constructive it's not necessary um but I, I've, I have had reviewers write to me in reviews basically I don't know why you've done this work like yes. yeah. <laughs> as long as it's just in that email to you you can kind of cope, I know but, but even that is really hard to I know hear. it's really oh my hard God. so um you know you have you do have to um get a thick skin and I think back to when I used to get reviews early on and how I feel about them now it just rolls off like it's just whatever yeah. whatever they think okay I'll, I'll go back and have a look at that but early on I used to take nearly every single comment to heart yes. and think this yeah. is terrible it's personal yeah and I'm hopeless and I'll never be good at this and now it's just like oh well they didn't yeah. like that I'll have to have another look at that um, and with the yeah. Twitter did you just have to ignore it like how did you cope with it because it does cut deep um, I wrote my own response actually. So I um, I sat on it for a little bit and then it was quite unfair what had happened. So I wrote my own response just with my own perspective about what had happened um, and it kind of shut everything down. And I actually ended up getting a lot of support from Twitter um, from people that I've never met, but I do have a, a little following on Twitter. And so people were coming out of the woodwork just supporting uh, me basically because I, 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 was tried to be very um, non-judgmental and just present the facts mm. of what had happened from my point of view. Um, and really you can't argue with that because it's fact, you know, yeah. it's it's what actually happened. And so it kind of um, helped it die down. And then I also felt supported, which was nice because yeah. I felt like, okay, I, this is just a, this is actually just an odd sort of situation and it's not that everyone thinks the same as what they think it's actually just I don't know why they decided to take yeah. a disliking to something that I did I, I don't understand I still don't understand and I probably never will so um, you got to leave it at that exactly and Kate oh there's been a few lows I'm not going to talk about COVID because COVID's finished, hasn't it? We're not having no. I hope so. No. Um, I think um, one of the main things that I really struggled with was probably when stepping into research um, and when I'd already enrolled in the PhD and I hadn't really done much research um, prior to, to starting that. And I 
all of a sudden sort of a wave came over me and thought, what have I done? And just thought, you know, because I was quite, I was a senior clinician in, and had been working for many years and, you know, was quite comfortable in that environment. And when I started, um, you know, in the PhD, I thought, I do not know anything and what have I just signed up for? And, and really that imposter syndrome was came out thick and fast. And um, that was yeah, it was quite hard to deal with, um, particularly when you've enrolled in something and you've got a scholarship, you have to follow through, which is um, probably a good thing that I just got thrown straight into it because you have to move forward. Um, but I think the first thing I did, and I can't remember, someone suggested it, but um, I was particularly nervous because I'd chosen a topic where there was no one really around me that was doing what I wanted to do. And so what I did is I reached out to sort of international experts to get advice and um, to try and connect with people. And that was very, I was very nervous sending off those emails thinking, who am I? Some little dietitian from Australia, no one's going to get back to me. And the two people I contacted um, who were leaders in the field got straight back to me and um, we started a, a dialogue and I ended up going across to Canada and the States to do some training and to build some relationships there. And that sort of just pulled me out because knowing I've got had people on my side to sort of help and guide me. I had my local people, but also people who were well-published, um, who knew what they were doing and they just, um, you know, were, were amazing support to me and we're still doing, we're yes. collaborating on multiple projects now. So um, I would say, you know, if you're in that sort of situation, um, you've still, taking a leap of faith is excellent, but make sure that, you you know, you, you reach out to people because actually more often than not people will agree to help you. I think that's the thing people don't ask sometimes. Um when you're in that sort of situation um, and also finding, you know, your, your, your people. I had a very good friend who was doing a PhD at the similar time and so we would connect and, you know, do writing retreats and and kind of support each other away along because it can be particularly research or where, if you're in, enrolled in a, um, a program of research or, um, yeah, master's or a PhD, it can be quite lonely if you're not embedded in a research centre like I wasn't. And um, so, yeah, finding someone to kind of, that you could be accountable to each other was very helpful and and definitely helped along the way. Yeah, I agree with that because um, doing a PhD off campus sort of part-time when I was doing it, uh, it was completely on my own. Um, and if you know, sometimes you can be flying because no one's holding you back. You can just do whatever you like. Other times you can just be consumed with the doubts and the worries about it because there's no one to just say, that's normal. It's just a part of the process. Um, but I also like your point about reaching out to people because really the worst thing that can happen usually is you don't get a response. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and what's, that's not a problem. So, but you might get a response. And that really does turn you around. So, yeah, I agree. I think that's really, really good advice. So talking about, thinking about that sort of move from the clinical space into the research space, um, and you've talked about the fact that you're trying to set up those structures at the Alfred, but for dietitians who might be listening who are kind of on their own, they might be in a smaller department, but they'd really like to sort of explore that research. How do they get from working clinically full-time into the research area because it does look like a big jump. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really hard. I think I would say start small and, you know, maybe start um, with, you know, a small quality project or, you know, start to try and understand the concepts about um, 
the quality cycle and the project, but also the, re, you know, if there's someone doing research in your centre, it doesn't need to be in dietetics, just ask to be get involved. So starting small. Um, I think, you know, reaching out to researchers maybe in the clinical area that you're working in, you might be able to get involved in a small part of it. Um, I think finding a mentor if you want to, if someone that you look up to or that you want to, you know, be like just to have a chat and to ask, you know, what their um, pathway has been and, and if they have any suggestions or want to be involved in this. But I would say this is a big issue um, with our profession and certainly doing, that's why we launched, I'm going to put a plug here for our Ospen mentoring program. Go for it. <laughs> so it's essentially, we, we know you've, You've nailed it. It's very hard sometimes. I think COVID set us back quite a long way because um, particularly for more junior clinicians, um, really haven't had any opportunity to do anything extra apart from clinical work for so long. Um, so, you know, this research program, which is where we've just started, so next year it'll be available, but is exactly that, to try and build a community of um, researchers and clinicians and also people who've never done research before to kind of talk through that. Um, the research process and help um, mentor and, and go along that journey together. Um, but it is, there are lots of opportunities. Emma's done some, Emma, maybe I'll let you talk about your great work in, you know, there are lots of other studies that people are leading that you can get involved in as well, which um, is a good step. Um, but I will say though, even though a PhD is very hard, having that structure around the PhD and that support um, and learning, having that, I suppose, it, 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 look, it is a bit of a, um, oh, it's a, such a nice thing to have, to have that time to, to do deep learning um, is amazing. And I think if you have an opportunity to, to, to be involved in a, a, a master's or a, a PhD of research, um, I would certainly suggest if you're interested in research, it's, a, it's an amazing way to go. Yeah. So, um, if you're in, if you're a clinician interested in research, then yeah, I would encourage you to just get some work experience if you can. So that might be um, participating in another person's research project. So um, a plug for my work, we often do that um, with our work where, you know, it's our funding, we set it up and we lead it, but the sites run it and we're obviously indebted to the sites and the clinicians that help us, but that's how our research works. And yes, we're doing our project, but one of my career aims, and I always try and reinforce this is to improve capacity for nutrition research for dietitians in critical care and I really try and embed the support part of it in anything that we do didn't work so well in COVID and you know wish I could have done it more in that process but um, hopefully we'll get back on track post-COVID where we're actually bringing people together for education in nutrition research and really building confidence often it's a lack of confidence people don't know where to start um, I certainly feel like this all the time like as a clinician I feel confident confident and I pretty much can find my way around anything um, and people come to me to ask questions um, you know I'm a senior staff member in research even though I've been doing it for like 13 years 14 years I still feel like I know nothing half the time I still am a fish out of water and I think that is a uh, position that people are uncomfortable to be in and particularly dietitians who are type a perfectionists it's uncomfortable to feel like you yep. don't know what you're doing and I feel like that every single day in my research career and it's something that I've just had to learn to sit with um, and it doesn't mean I'm not good at it it just means that I'm learning all the time and that's what I love about it that's what keeps me going because I am learning all the time 
Um, and so I think sometimes that puts people off because they think, oh, I'm not so sure. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have any skills. And then they don't. And really, maybe if they just tried it, it would be something that they would really enjoy. Um, as I mentioned early on in my career, there was a position that was a project management position and it was kind of too good to be true. So I, I left full-time clinical earlier than I anticipated or ever thought I would. But it was an opportunity that I kind of thought, this is not going to come around again and I might miss out on this completely. And I'm pretty sure I can go back to dietetics. You know, there's always going to be jobs in dietetics and I'm pretty sure my nutrition boss would have me back if it didn't work at some point. Um, and so I thought, I'm just going to take this opportunity. I was really worried about it. I thought, I don't know if I'm going to like this. I don't know if it's right. But it was really, it was really great thing to do. And I'm really glad that I did it because I learned to be a project manager. So I wasn't developing the ideas. I wasn't, you know, taking all the stress of it, but I was actually learning how to do research. And so, you know, there's opportunities like that, even if it's within the medical area that you work in, we sometimes get really stuck in our own nutrition world, but maybe there's a medical study that they're doing that they need a project coordinator for. And perhaps that's something you could take as a condiment for 12 months to, you know, try that position. And then that would expose you to research. You'd learn about research and then you might decide you'd like to do it. And so yeah. I think just sometimes getting out of our own way and getting not so stuck in nutrition also can help because there are lots of other opportunities out there. Yeah, and stepping back and just reflecting on what skills we have to offer because we've done all that sort of in a smaller way. It might not be called project management, but chances are you've done something in your department that's been about managing a project or setting something up. And so think about those skills more broadly. And I always wonder, um, be interested in your feedback on this. I sort of think that also publishing the opportunity to publish so even if you're doing a quality improvement project if you can get it through ethics which is a good experience in itself in your department and get something published or presented at a conference they're really good ways because then people might reach out to you and go oh I saw this publication and then you sort of build a little mini research group I feel like getting publications is a really valuable asset no matter where you are. Yeah, absolutely. And I often have, I sometimes have people reach out to me to say, have you got something we could help with? Um, you know, I really respect people that are brave enough to ask those sort of questions. So if we have a literature review we're doing, for example, we would say, yeah, come on board, help us do a review. You'll be listed on the publication. You can get experience in the process. Um, and so, yeah, I, as Kate says, sometimes you just have to ask if you're interested. And that's a literature review is something that you can do in your own time. And yes, you have to dedicate your own time, but you can do it from home. You can do a little bit on the weekend. And if it's really something you want to get experience in, there will be lots of opportunities for you to get involved in that. Yeah. The only thing I would add as well is just make sure it's known that you're interested in research to not only in your nutrition department, but where, where you're working with the medical and nursing teams as well, because as Emma said, there are a lot of opportunities and no one's going to know if you're not, you're not if, if you don't say anything and no one's going to know that you're interested in. And one thing we've noticed with some of the submissions for the OSPEN grants, as well as um, just some of the work through the mentoring program is that I think sometimes people are, as I said, scared to reach out to others and the, the, the research team is really small and it's really important with research as a team sport and you need you know lots of different people involved to make sure that it's successful so just reaching out to people and building you know people that you like you know building up a little team and and you know making sure that everyone knows that you're keen to dip your toe in is a good start yeah that's great and what we will do is put some of the links for example to the Ospen um 
mentoring, um, but also your um, Australian New Zealand intensive care research um, into our show notes here so that people have at least got a link to go to to see what's going on. Um, and, you know, we've talked about intensive care nutrition, but the same applies for any other area that you're interested in. You know, there Absolutely. are organisations out there doing yeah. the research and even just doing a bit of a search of um, published papers in that field in Australia, for example, you'll get some names and you'll you'll soon find where the researchers are. So, look, thank you very much, both of you, for your time today. It's been lovely to hear about your journeys and um, I'll look forward to seeing continued success and um, empire building from both of you as we go forward. Thanks, Thanks Jane. Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.